Hey, this is Emma Sutherland. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to Leah Heckman about endometriosis, but from an entirely new angle of trauma, pain, and neuroplasticity. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr Michelle Woolhouse. The recent floods in northern New South Wales and Queensland have been devastating. The extensive water damage to both commercial and private property is not only associated with economic costs, but also mental, physical and emotional costs as well, affecting the health of both the individual and the whole community. While the aftermath of natural disasters can sometimes be difficult to predict, we do know one major issue associated wherever water damage occurs, and that is rising damp and mould. There has been some great discussions happening in the community around this subject already to help people become aware of the potential issues and most importantly, what can be done to help the situation. Joining us today is Dr Sandeep Gupta. One of my dear friends and a fellow integrative GP, and he's one of Australia's leading experts on mould and biotoxin illness. In addition to his specialty in nutritional and environmental medicine, he holds certification in biotoxin illness and is a board member of both the Australian Chronic Infectious and Inflammatory Diseases Society and also the International Society for Acquired Environmental Illness. Welcome to FX Medicine, Sandeep. Thanks for being with us today. You're welcome, Michelle. Excited to chat with you today. So, Sandeep, I wanted to start with the basics. Tell us what mould is and when does mould become a problem? Okay, so mould is a type of fungal organism uh, that's multicellular. So single-celled fungus is what we call yeast. And yeasts include candida, albicans, uh, which is known quite commonly, but also a number of other organisms. Uh, They can also, by the way, grow in uh, damp buildings, but they're more known for causing infections in in humans. Uh, So so mold um, includes genuses such as aspergillus, which is known to cause uh, a variety of conditions um, referred to as aspergillosis, and also penicillium, which uh, is where the antibiotic penicillin um, came from. The fungal organisms mold are not so complex that they've actually become mushrooms, though. So (laughs) mushrooms Mm -hmm. are the third type of fungal organisms. Mold, we talk about mold for shorthand, but really the problem is damp buildings. And mm. uh, and it's it's actually not just mold. It's it's a whole toxic soup of organisms, which include bacteria, um, VOCs, which stands for volatile organic compounds, uh, uh, microbial VOCs, or we call MVOCs for short, parasites, actinomyces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So just right. to throw that one in, it's actually not just mold, but we do refer to it as mold uh, in shorthand. Mm. And so, so yeah, so it, it is normal to have a certain amount of mold in, in an environment, particularly an outdoor environment, but it beca- simply becomes a problem when it exceeds the threshold of any individual's uh, capability to tolerate. 
And so that's individual. So I'm not going to give you a certain spore count or something like that because it yeah. doesn't exist. It's it's individual. And mm. so... So some people are more sensitive to mould than other people, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I was just going to say is that you mm. may tolerate a house that has a high level of mould for some reason. Mm. You know, you, you may be... You know, you you may have um, very good genetics and very good gut health and and so on. While I, on the other hand, may only tolerate uh, a mold count of one quarter as much before I start getting uh, some type of symptoms. Now, I'll talk about the different types of um, symptoms and the different types of presentations, but it could be allergic to start with. Uh, or it could be more like a, a mild infection that I start developing. You can hear I've got a little bit of a sinus uh, infection going on at the moment, and that's from that was actually from staying in a mouldy residence uh, down in Byron Bay. So yeah. that is the sort of thing that I start to develop, but someone else may not develop that until a much, much higher level of moulds in a place. So, um, so there's definitely a significant individual variability in the sensitivity to it. And so how does it cause illness? What's the actual mechanism of it? Or is it, you know, is it multi, multifactorial? Multifactorial. So there's different types. So if you have a property or a building that is damp enough, uh, almost every person in there will develop some symptoms. Right. Uh, however, the majority of people tend to get more localised symptoms. So that would be things like a sore throat, runny nose, congested sinuses, uh, sneezing, etc. And generally those symptoms uh, are related to allergy or in mm. some cases can be related to a mild infection. Now there's a small proportion of the population who are susceptible to getting a whole body inflammatory process where it doesn't just affect their nasal passages and throat and localized area, but it actually affects the whole body. And rather than just having those localized symptoms, I also get things like fatigue, anxiety, insomnia, skin rashes, digestive symptoms, etc. The list goes on and on. And that mm. kind of list of symptoms is probably enough to make most GPs uh, go and hide under their chair <laughs> and um, yep. start pulling out the prescription book for antidepressants within seconds. Yeah, exactly. But it's not depression. It's not depression. It's, it's actually an inflammatory reaction to uh, microbes in a water-damaged bu- building. And it is a real condition that needs to be recognised. And so why is there so much controversy about it is it is it just because it's it's new on the radar is it because we've got issues with water damp buildings you know is it the building code like why is it so controversial well it still hasn't made its way into conventional medicine and even though there are there is quite a number of papers what we haven't got at this point is the classic lancet study or the classic bmj or new england journal of medicine study mm. that many of the specialists like to see before they declare something as being real uh we've still generally got articles which are in slightly more lesser known journals and it's considered by many expert bodies to still be quite you know still be quite new and controversial so you know it takes a certain amount of time for something to break into the medical world and yeah. you know some people say 20 20 years or so um and 
yeah, was just still not there yet in terms of the worldwide literature. And we really are hoping that Australia is going to make a difference with this. We've recently been uh, basically given a grant by NHMRC in a study run by Macquarie University and Professor Gilles Gillimon, uh, including myself and Dr. Janet Kim as the main clinicians, to run a study into biotoxin-related illness, um, particularly related to mold in Australia. And yeah, we hope that the results of that may help the literature worldwide uh, to be more solid and robust. That's fantastic, Sandy. So tell us about what we need to look out for. You mentioned a couple of things like fatigue, anxiety, insomnia, skin rashes, digestive symptoms. Like, I mean, that that can be such a across the board. Like, I mean, obviously, if somebody has been in the Northern Rivers or there's been flood effect, that that gives us a clue. Is there something that really sticks out or is there some questions that we really need to to ask everybody presenting with these kind of things just to sort of get us thinking about mould being a potential reason for why there's so much inflammation going on in that particular person's body? Great question. Uh, the answer is not that simple. <laughs> but <laughs> That's okay. We can... let, let's, um... let's break it down. Let's go to the flood part first. Okay. So let's say there is a patient who you know has been in in a flood situation. I think the first thing is to find out what was the extent of flood damage. Mm. Uh, so if someone actually had water come into their home, like literally they had water inside their house. Mm. Then, well, some people had meters of water. Yeah, that's right. So... So if you get that sort of history, then the thing to know is they are in a water-damaged building. They're in a massively contaminated building by definition, okay? There's no way around that. So you need – the first thing is just having that understanding. Mm. So if you get water into the substance of of a building for 48 hours or more, that is by definition a water-damaged building. And by definition, there is going to be microbes uh, growing there, such as mold and bacteria and so on. So therefore, yep. you can already add that bit of understanding into your assessment that that person's living in a water-damaged building. Now, as to the symptoms, so then there's the, the timing mm. of symptoms, of course. So, you know, mapping out when the flood happened and has there been new symptoms or has there been a change in symptoms uh, at, that corresponds to the timing. And, you know, so for instance, I have uh, one one friend in that Northern Rivers area and started, you know, developing uh, regular respiratory tract infections, uh, lower mood, um, more fatigue, all straight after the flood and the water came into the house. So that's classic. That would be a, a classic example uh, that they are in a water damage building and they're developing a reactivity because the symptoms are corresponding to the timing. Mm. So, uh, so, so that's a really important way, you know, is just to tease out. So when you start asking a patient about mold, one of the key things to know is uh, just asking them straightly and plainly, do you have mold in your home? Yeah. Generally doesn't give you a useful answer. The reason being that most people just don't have enough understanding of this problem and they see it as more of a cosmetic issue. And, mm. and many people will almost interpret that as a, uh, a statement of cleanliness, that their cleanliness is being questioned. Uh, 
yeah. and they will quite quickly say, no, of course I do not. <laughs> Uh, mm. <laughs> have have I um, have mold in my home? I clean my home, and so yeah, there's just there's just true. a gap a gap of understanding there, and uh, and so you need to get a bit more sophisticated in asking, you know, for instance, are there musty um, smells in the home? Um, have there been any episodes of flooding or leaking? So, for instance, leaking could be from the roof. It could be from white goods such as washing machines, fridges, etc. Has there been any occupant behavior-related issues? So, for instance, running a bath or sink over, which is very common actually, um, uh, and various other, you know, you can get into some other fine points, but they, they would be some things to ask about uh, if it's not, not in the setting of a flood. Uh, and uh, do they notice any difference when they go away from the home? Did they notice any difference when they moved into the home in terms of their symptoms? And sometimes when you have people who have been unwell for a long time period of time, you start asking them this, there will actually be a light bulb moment uh, where they go, ah, hang on. Okay, I developed chronic fatigue syndrome in 1984, let's say. And hang on, that house I was living in at that time, that did have a leak or that did have musty smells in it. So just asking the questions is very powerful. Don't underrate mm. that because sometimes you'll, you'll just put on a light bulb uh, for a client. Uh, sometimes you'll unearth that there has been a correlation to timing. Now, in some cases, the, the correlation to timing is not as clear for whatever reason. Uh, mm. And I can go into that, but sometimes there's not a direct. Sometimes someone can be living in a building for years, and they're not necessarily reacting to it until they go what, get what we call a cytokine priming event. Now that could be an infection such as Epstein Barr virus, Kawasaki, tick bite, etc. There's, I mean, or even a big mold event itself. And what about COVID? Like, what about a, a viral infection yeah, like COVID? Yeah, most likely, be, yes. I mean, it, yeah. that hasn't been described in the literature from Richie Shoemaker because it wasn't around then. Of but course. yeah, I'm quite sure that I'm quite sure that would be uh, that would be part of it. Yeah, getting COVID. I haven't actually seen that yet, but I'm sure that is the case. Actually, the so doctor Shoemaker, who was the doctor I, I studied with initially when I learned about mold-related illnesses, is looking at um, transcriptomic testing, and he has found that people with long COVID generally are reacting to mold. Right. Yeah. So oh, that, that's a, very what interesting. A um, triple whammy, double whammy. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes they can be living in a home. They can, yeah. be, they can be exposed for a long period of time and until that sort of event happens. So that's also something to ask for in the history. Have they had a bad viral illness or tick bite or any kind of big inflammatory illness along the way while they were living uh, in, in, that, in that home or, or working in, in that particular workplace? Uh, so, so that's the history part. Yeah. So, so they don't necessarily have to be living in, in a house. Like it could be their place of work. It could be a flooded shop and their home may have been immune yep. from something so they're not really thinking about that or they may not even know the history of that, which is sort of adds to the, um, the mystery in some ways. Yes, exactly. It could even be, let's say they go into a room regularly for 20, half an hour a day. They go into a meeting room or something. It right. could even be that. You know, so if it's anything more than about five, ten minutes a day could be significant, uh, right. you know, in terms of, of, of turning on their inflammatory pathways. 
And I guess the other clue that that um, I was sort of taught about was to see whether their symptoms got better when they went away on holidays, for example. Like a, I remember a patient who went away to like central Australia, so in the desert, which is probably one of the most unmouldy places, uh, and went camping and found her symptoms were much better. Um, and that was kind of the clincher for us to kind of um, go down that pathway. Is there other clues like that that you've heard? I mean, you've you've probably interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of people with mould, like with clues like that, that can sometimes prick your ears up. Yes. Uh, yeah, I do find that one's quite variable because of course, the other side of that is, you know, generally when people go on holiday, they go and stay in a hotel or Airbnb or apartment or whatever. And guess what? The majority of buildings are water damaged in Australia. So <laughs> therefore they may not notice that, uh, uh, yeah, that type enough. of pattern. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and camping is definitely the best. One question that I've always had, like, I mean, a lot of people have that classic kind of mould. You've got those kids that have got the runny nose and they're constantly sort of got that upper respiratory tract or even lower respiratory tract infection. Is that always the case? Or do some people not get the respiratory type symptoms and come in with the more whole body anxiety, insomnia, aches and pains, fatigue, etc. what we discussed before. Can you have one without the other? Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, yeah, so you're not talking about a localised problem here. So the, the mould is coming in through the respiratory tract, but we're not talking so much about, some people don't have a localised response, they have a systemic response. They may mm. not have any respiratory symptoms whatsoever. Right, so that's important to for for all of us to know, you know, that it, it's it's not one and the same. It's not like a linear response. It can be completely um, different in different people. Exactly, exactly. That's a really good point. It's not linear at all. It's individual, mm. and some yeah, people wow. could have only a mild amount of um, of contamination in their building, and they have a massive response because mm. it's triggered certain a certain genetic pathway and other people could have a massive exposure and only have a relatively mild response because of their individual genetics and um, and, and bodily health. And along with things like the, the cytokine storm that you spoke about with the viral infections and, you know, or, um, or, or other related infections, is there other causes of that? Like what about things like um, PTSD or... Other kind of reasons for stressors, medications, for example, like is there any other risk factors that can kind of trigger those events? Uh, I suspect so, based on my history taking through the years. Uh, Dr. Shoemaker hasn't described them, but, you know, the thing is there's only a limited amount of things you can actually study. Mm. And I, generally speaking, you know, a lot of the time you take a history and you will notice that people's symptoms have really started after a significant emotional trauma. Mm. And so we know there is an inflammatory aspect to that uh, from, from various studies, including the one by Becker, which was from a medical student from Harvard who published a really interesting paper a few years back where she also found that it, it activated or it had an epigenetic effect on a whole bunch of genes. So I think oh. trauma is, is highly likely. Uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Oh, just things like medications or medications. You know, other... Yeah, or operations, you know, for example, some sort of other yeah, operations. stressor. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I don't know about medications. It's possible. 
I think if someone had an inflammatory response to a medication, I think then yes, that would be operations definitely are a stress. There's no doubt about it. Uh, motherhood, going through pregnancy is a stress. Yeah. Oscar Serralac says that's inflammatory in and of itself. Yeah, that's uh, right. So there is there's a whole whole uh, series of event life events um, that are potentially significant, and that's one big part of the history is teasing out the onset of different symptoms and how it relates to life events. But there appears yeah. to be a causal relationship to all those kinds of uh, events and onset of illness. Mm. Sandeep, what don't we know about mould illness? Like what, I mean, I guess what, what concerns you the most about these recent events? You know, is it our lack of awareness? Is it the potential long-term effects? Like what don't we know and what, what do you feel like we need to know? Yeah, I think potential long-term effects is very important because potentially if you look at the various genetic pathways that can get activated, there is concern about risk of triggering coronary artery disease. There is concern about triggering cancer in some people. However, this has not been documented at this point. And Mm. so it's only, you know, a possibility at this point. So Mm. that would definitely be an area of research which is quite important. Uh, to to look at long term effects and what risks there are. There's also quite possibly a risk of Alzheimer's yeah. that comes with uh, long term mold exposure, which has been documented by Professor Dale Bredesen uh, from um, from California. Right. And uh, so 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 there can be all all types of of long term effects. I believe. I think autoimmune illnesses is, is another important one that needs to be looked at. I know Nicole Bilesma, who's um, Kind of the head building biologist in Australia, uh, and uh, an and educator believes that there is a very strong connection there with autoimmune conditions such as multiple sclerosis. The literature yeah. is starting to show a connection there. Well, it's very multifactorial, isn't it? It's multi multi layered. So, in many ways, we often talk about prevention is the you know is the ultimate kind of treatment. Is there ways in which we can protect ourselves from? potential issues with mold like i mean obviously you've alluded to the you know the issue that we've got some genetic susceptibility but even if you were genetically susceptible is there things that we can do to help protect ourselves from developing that inflammatory response apart from obviously not oh, living working yeah so what what are the things that we can kind of look at to sort of i guess support the body in terms of prevention well, I would go more to talking about the house, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I would be great. Thinking, in Let's terms talk of about preventing, <laughs> in terms of preventing mold-related illness. Uh, well, some of the key things are keeping an eye on the humidity in your home, and make sure that that's generally staying in the forty-five to fifty-five percent range. If not, you need to run dehumidifiers. Yeah. Number two, generally choose a place that doesn't have carpet. Uh, or or kind of fat, large fabric curtains because they're going to be materials which are very easily contaminated. Uh, number three, exhaust fans in all the bedroom in all the bathrooms that exhaust outside of the home. Yeah. Uh, range hoods on the cooktop that exhaust outside the home. There's a whole range of things, but basically awareness is the key. And then the other huge thing is if you have a water intrusion event. So let's say one of the kids runs the bath over. Uh, You need to know that there's an emergency protocol for that. 
Right. Which is, you know, you need to know of a remediator who can come in and run some very high-powered dehumidifiers yeah. for a couple of days and dry that out. Uh, and so, so it's it's knowledge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what this podcast is all about: is to is to give people knowledge. I mean, obviously, people up in the northern rivers have been, you know, massively affected. One of the questions that I have had, you know, in the sense of like, we know that mould is kind of an extension, you know, and it, it extends beyond its boundaries, and sometimes you can't even see it, and it could be in a wall that you, you don't even know that's sort of there. So it has got this fear factor to it. If you were really aware of your household, could your neighbour's mould problem affect you? If you're extremely sensitive mm. uh, and and if your neighbour's contamination problem is massive, like literally their, you know, their, their whole place is just an absolute um, write-off, then that's possible. But I, I haven't actually encountered that mm. in practice. Yeah, but there's a possibility that that could be an issue if someone had, like, for instance, you know, you lived in Mullumbimby and your neighbours basically had water all through your home, and you've got your house totally remediated or re. Some people have to have the whole house rebuilt. Yeah, uh, and then your neighbours on both sides have still got massively contaminated uh, buildings. I could see that being an issue for some people. Yeah. So once we've established somebody that's got um, a mould-related issue, what do what do we do? What's our first port of call? First port of call is education. Yeah. Uh, explaining the nature of the illness, explaining that there is a treatment. You can recover from this. This is not the end. So mm. realising that your client is going to have uh, a massive amount of overwhelm and fear. Yeah. And so, so you need to explain to them that there is a well-documented treatment protocol. This can be overcome and there is expertise in Australia that is going to be sufficient for them to, to overcome this problem. Uh, I also, you know, I do have an online course and pardon me for plugging it, but I do, no, um, I do believe that it's extremely helpful because what it does is go through everything very simply. So we call it mm. mold illness made simple. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, because a lot of the information out there on the internet is extremely complicated and overwhelming and, yeah. and actually incorrect, some of it. So getting your client to get uh, simple and clear information that guides them through the process of identifying whether they've got a mold-related illness, uh, working out whether their building has a major problem or not, and thirdly, going through the treatment protocol themselves. And then lastly, uh, recovering from the trauma of mold because of, you know it in and of itself is an emotional trauma, having gone through yeah. a mold situation, and then finding a safe home for themselves, assuming the home is the problem and being able to maintain that free of home for future. So we take them uh, all the way through that. Fantastic. And, Sounds like uh, a great and, and I believe at the end of it, people feel a lot less overwhelmed and a lot more yeah. clear and confident, which is, which is one of the keys. So that's, that's to start off with, I would say. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's right. a great initiative to kind of simplify it and actually give people hope. I think it's the most important thing so that, and people can then go through a stepwise 
um, situation. But as, as practitioners, what's the best way to diagnose that or to confirm that? Can we diagnose it just on history and examination or is there certain investigations that you like to do that can confirm you moving into the next kind of treatment protocol? Yeah, so after education, the next thing is kind of discussing with them how clear they are about this or how confident they are on this diagnosis. And yes, you can diagnose it on history in many cases. Mm. Uh, So let's say the case of patient X (laughs) who's living in uh, Mullumbimby or Lismore and uh, had a little bit of fatigue, but then after the floods, they had water coming into their house and then they started developing much more severe fatigue and depression and joint pains. Well, there you go, done. You you actually don't need a test to, yeah. to diagnose that. Um, so you can do tests. Now, there's a big fashion to just go and run a urinary mycotoxin test. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about that. Let's do that. The urinary <laughs> mycotoxin test only tells you what the client is urinating at the time of the test. That is all it tells you. Now, if the person is urinating nothing, that does not mean they don't have a mold related problem. Okay. If they are urinating out some small amount of mold toxins, let's say a little bit of ochratoxin, that does not necessarily mean they have a mold problem. So we've got to put a stop to this nonsense about let's just run a urinary mycotoxin test and then you say to them, okay, there you go, you've got mold. That yeah. is nonsense and unscientific and we've got to stop doing that. We are doctors and we're clinicians. We take a history. <laughs> and totally. we don't we don't you know that's right you don't a urinary mycotoxin test is not well validated mm. in the literature now i'm not saying i'm not also taking the other extreme that it tells you nothing you can do it but what i'm saying is that your history should be the key you should be able to tell yeah. from your history once you become adept at this area uh, that you know whether or whether not, and I and I guided you through how, some of the questions that you'd ask, whether or whether or not your client is likely to be um, to be suffering from a mold related illness. Now mm. that could be allergy related, that could be infection related, that could be a whole body inflammatory process, which could be yeah. either what we call CIRS or mast cell activation syndrome, the two yeah. different kind of flavors of it. Uh, so based on the history, you then can do some tests to answer specific questions. They do not replace the history and Mm. they do not answer the question, is there mold? Okay. So if you can't get that answer through your history, you need to go back and think about the questions you're asking. Mm. Okay. So then doing a urinary mycotoxin test, in my opinion, is to answer the questions, how well is this patient excreting? Yes. Via the urinary route. So does that mean if somebody's excreting large amounts, they're actually doing a good job? And the ones that are excreting small amounts yes. could actually be holding on to their mould, you know, and actually having poor detoxification, is that? Exactly, exactly. You want to see, you want to see a lot of mould. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it's actually exactly. the opposite. You want to see, so, that's right. So, so when hmm. people say, oh, there you go, you've got some mould on your urinary mycotoxin test, it's, it's more like that's a good sign. 
that yeah. you're, you're able to detox. The one that show probably when people show up zero, that's also uh, abnormal. A warning sign, yeah. And that's probably more the concern. That's more the concern. Mm. So a small amount of ochratoxin and or mycophenolic acid is probably um, within the range of normal. Uh, and uh, yeah, so so you should see a little bit coming through through uh, normal exposure through food and just general day to day exposure. Yes. Yeah, sure. uh, so if you see nothing, nothing, that's probably that's probably an important sign. And if you see high levels, particularly of trichosacenes in someone, well, that's significant as well. But right. a lot of um, a lot of results you'll see just show a little bit of ochratoxin and a little bit of mycophenolic acid. This is if you're using Great Plains Lab. Real-time yeah. laboratory is slightly different, uh, and I'm not sure that's particularly predictive at all when you just see that small amount of ochratoxin, etc. Mm. I think that's probably normal. So is there a better test to do? Like do you do visual contrasting sensitivity testing? Is there anything to kind of guide you that gives you that, right, yeah, I'm definitely on the yep. right path? Or do you do an ERMI at home? Visual contrast sensitivity is more of a progress marker. It's also a screening test. It's not specific for mold. It's just a marker of neuroinflammation in general. Yeah. But you want to see that that's improving mm -hmm. uh, as you go along. Uh, you can do testing for VIP and leptin and um, something called copeptin, uh, which are also indirect markers of um, CIRS. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in in Australia, which are available in Australia through laboratories, um, and yes. that that appears to be useful. You can also now do VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor, uh, which is also a useful marker, which come generally will be low. Yeah, in mole patients. So, However, none of those markers individually, if they're normal, excluded. Yes. So, but but if you see quite, you know, let's say three out of four of those markers are abnormal, that's that's pretty much it. And are they all low or some high and some low? So the VIP and uh, VEGF generally go low, but they actually all can go both ways. You can get a high level in some uh, clients. Right. Um, then the leptin, which I mentioned, uh, generally will go high, particularly in those with weight gain. And sorry, copeptin yeah. also generally will go low. Uh, we are also looking at just getting, you know, going back to having the U.S. labs available where we can run um, C4A and TGF beta and MMP9. Now, those three markers generally all go high in, in CIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So those are um, also useful. And the other thing that can be useful is the organic acid testing. Now, the reason for that is to ask about auxiliary problems. So, uh, a, is there mold-related infection? Now, that's yeah. the, the first page of the Great Plains Organic Acid Test uh, will help with answering that. It's not 100% specific, but it's pretty useful. Yeah. Then secondly, is there also bacteria and clostridium associated with this? Uh, is there elevated oxalates? Now, uh, some people like Emily Givler, whose work I do recommend, is saying that oxalates are like a secondary mycotoxin. Mm. And so if someone's got high oxalates, you need to address that as well. Uh, and then mitochondrial function, is that been affected significantly? Uh, because that is also an outcome of mold-related illness. And then nutrient sufficiency. So you often will see significant B vitamin deficiencies, particularly when you have hyperoxaluria, high oxalates. And then you'll also often see um, glutathione 
related um, problems yeah. uh, or abnormalities in, in mold-related illness. So that's quite a useful test just to to pick up uh, associated problems. And then there's also some markers for chemical toxicity. Yeah, that's right. So you're looking kind of at, all right, so we've got a body that's under, you know, enormous amounts of, of stress. It's in a chronic kind of inflammatory cycle. What else is going on? How do we build the body up? How do we support all of the auxiliary sort of systems so that we can work towards healing the body long term? And so you're using some of these tests not only for diagnostic purposes but also to help shape your understanding of, of where this person needs to kind of concentrate their attention to see them get better. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yes. Perfect. And so in terms of treatment protocol, and, and this, I, I love the sound of your online course and thanks for sharing because that's really important information, you know, for people because I just love that educational awareness side of things because really, let's face it, education just almost can be sort of the relieving points better than an antidepressant in most cases I find. But what do we do in terms of treatment? Like I know eradication is really important but and obviously everybody's individualised, but is there some key features that you've found to be probably the most um, effective? You know, how, how we start off, is there medications, yep. is there... Yep. Um, yeah, so so one of the key things is firstly making sure that the client is um, is passing bowel motions regularly, and okay. uh, their excretory pathways are open, and that the you know they're getting reasonable amounts of sleep, and that their digestion is working. That's the starting point, because you don't want to give binders to anyone who's very constipated. So then the yeah. next step is if they're not constipated, etc., we start some binder uh, medications or supplements. Uh, and so the the idea with the binder or, or bile acid binding resin is the, the technical name uh, yes. is to bind onto any mycotoxins which have been excreted in the bile, so yeah. that they don't undergo what we call enterohepatic recirculation, and they actually are excreted through the the fecal route. So the classic thing was uh, cholestyramine. Yep. Which is a classic bile acid binding resin, which which everyone knows binds onto the the cholesterol and other aspects of the bile and pulls them out of the body. Well, it, it turns out that it that they actually um, sorry cholestyramine actually binds onto mycotoxins as well. Dr. Shoemaker yep. discovered this by accident in a client who was suffering with a blue green algae related condition who came in with a whole body inflammatory process, including diarrhea. So he prescribed the cholestyramine to help the diarrhea, but it in, in fact it uh, it ended up hel- um, helping with every symptom. So he found that out by accident, nice. <laughs> and uh, we've, <laughs> we've since got a, you know we since know that there's a range of of other um, compounds, colocevalam hydrochloride, uh, in the medical world, and then you've got activated charcoal, bentonite clay, zeolite, yeah. chitosan. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh, so, so natural binders also appear to have some effect, even though the, it, it does tend to be milder and um, and and slower. But that's you know, it just depends on how severe. The the more severe and acute it is, the more you may consider using the um, the medical or pharmaceutical binders. Mm. And uh, and yeah, and and if it if it's more mild and ongoing, I would I would tend to. To more use the natural binders also depends on the sensitivity of the client. If your client tends to react uh, to a lot of pharmaceuticals, I wouldn't 
recommend uh, using them then. And yeah. I would, uh, you know, if they're, they're an extremely sensitive person, uh, just start with a tiny amount of, um, of something like bentonite clay. So something gentle that you'd kind of, you know, something more of gentle. a long-term view of, of getting rid of it over the long term. That's right. So if, if you've got infection or whatever it might be, you're almost always going to have mycotoxins involved. Uh, yeah. And then, um, so that's the first part. Now, if there is mold infection present, uh, you want to have some herbal treatment generally to start with. I actually use your reishi mushroom quite a lot, which is kind mm. of paradoxical. Isn't it? I mean, that's the amazing thing about fungus. They are so paradoxical. Yeah, there's a, there's a very good talk on the internet called How Mushrooms Can Save the World. So there is, mm. I'm not saying that the whole of the fungal kingdom is all harmful. There's actually very powerful and amazing properties. And so medicinal mushrooms I'm a big fan of. They've got glucans and various other uh, compounds which which greatly help the immune system. And so reishi immune or reishi mushroom rather in general seems to be very antifungal. Can mm. also use powder arco and golden seal, etc. I generally recommend starting with the herbal route and only if someone has very severe uh, fungal infection. So for instance, their aspergillus uh, serology is positive. You may want to look at using um, one of the uh, the conazoles, if you like, the azole antifungals, like itraconazole. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, I, I would start with fungals. And then the next thing is you want to support the detoxification system of the body, which is often mm -hmm. affected because... If you're using a um, a binder, but the person's not actually creating any bile, mm. uh, well, there's nothing for the, the binder to bind onto. So, mm. so <laughs> therefore, using what we call um, collagogs, or collagog herbs, which includes turmeric and St. Mary's thistle and bile artichoke, etc., uh, globe artichoke rather, not bile artichoke, uh, <laughs> and will all be... <laughs> That sounded like a good name for it. Uh, so th they're all things that can be um, that can be useful as well. And then then antioxidants are often needed as well. Mm. So we talk about turmeric, or you know, curcumin extract is often quite use is often very useful. Also resveratrol, uh, they can be extremely helpful. So you can see that already here. We're creating a a treatment protocol which is pretty comprehensive. And holistic and, and looking at all of the different yeah. kind of factors of the body as well. So, well, there's just so much to That's it, but it, it comes back to that holistic principles of looking at the patient in front of you and really listening and taking, you know, an in-depth history, but also understanding, you know, how they feel. Yes, absolutely. And, and understanding their tolerance level as well. So, you know, you may get a big, you know, big, strong, uh, man and not being sexist here, but there is a big difference in terms of um, how males and females seem to react. Is my um, my observation? You know, some 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 guys just have virtually zero sensitivity, and so that sort of person you might might just start on a full dose of cholestyramine. Yeah. Uh, whereas on the other hand, you might find you know particularly a, a female who's very very sensitive, uh, underweight and has muscle activation, you may find that even just a sprinkle or, you know, a toothpick amount of zeolite or bentonite clay a day is all that can be tolerated. Mm. So there, yes. there, is, there is a big difference there. 
Wow, Sandeep, there's so much to it, but just so much information. And it's just wonderful to have you as one of our leading experts in Australia. Really, thank you so much for being with us today and discuss this incredibly timely subject of mould and all of the effects that it have on physical and mental health, as well as looking out for symptoms and, and really that key point of taking that incredibly detailed history and just having the time to ask those questions can be quite paramount. So thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Michelle. It's been nice chatting. And in closing, I'll just add that one of my textbooks that I had when I was a medical student, uh, I think it was just called Clinical Medicine by Tally and O'Connor. You remember that Oh, yeah, Tally, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so the, the statement right at the start of it said, more is missed by not looking than not knowing. Yep. And I, I think that, right. that's a really key principle here in environmental medicine. Uh, if you take the time to ask the questions, uh, you, you'll be surprised at what you can uncover sometimes. Yeah, fantastic. And it's so great to have you as a resource that we can call upon. And um, we'll have all of your information um, and website and where people can access that information on the FX Medicine website. Great. Good talking. And uh, yeah, we'll hope this has been a benefit to people. Thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Leah Hechtman. Despite advances in our understanding of the microbial, hormonal, and immunological drivers behind endometriosis, the pain associated with this condition often persists, even after treatment. We now know that people with endometriosis have fundamental neurological and neuropathic differences in how they perceive and handle pain. Join me live online on Wednesday, June 7th for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, the neuropsychoangiobasis of endometriosis. In this 90-minute session, I'll be diving deep into neurocircuitry, pain perception, neuroangiogenesis, and the underlying pain mechanisms of endo. I'll also be including a case study to demonstrate how my research and clinical approach could translate into clinical practice for you. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today.